Welcome back, guys, to Within Tolerance Podcast, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Proteum Machining, and this week I'm joined by AJ Huff of Design the Everything. So welcome, AJ. Thank you. So real quick, before we get into it, why don't you tell the audience uh, what Design the Everything is if they don't follow you on Instagram or or wherever they can find you and uh, kind of plug your brand. So Design the Everything is a very small company right now. It is just me and my business partner, uh, Scott. Scott handles our graphic design and website and that kind of thing. And then I do all of the machining and handle our Instagram. Design the Everything, our stated mission statement is that we make beautiful things that people love to use every day. Throughout time, the things that we make has changed. Uh, Right now, we specialize in branding irons, custom branding irons that a woodworker or a leather worker would use to put their logo on whatever they make. Speaking of which, I actually just got mine in the mail today, and it looks fantastic. Good, good. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> since I knew you were coming on, I was like, oh, I wonder where my uh, iron is. And I checked the tracking. I was like, oh, it was delivered Friday, apparently. And I, I guess I was just so busy all weekend that I didn't check the mailbox. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I pulled it up open and checked it out right before the podcast. And I'm, I'm really excited to start branding something, at least. I, I'm like looking around my house like, what can I brand that? my fiance won't kill me for <laughs> so yeah thank thank you for that and uh yeah they definitely make you guys make some really gorgeous looking things on some machines that most people might not expect them from so um why don't we go down your background of how you got into manufacturing you know did you study in college or how did you kind of go down this route yeah so i think like most of the people you have on here i started off um growing up i was into you know, building things and Legos. And my dad has a construction background and an electrical engineering background. So I helped him out with just, you know, a lot of house projects, which got me into just kind of generally making things. Um, And so I would tinker just with whatever I had around RC cars. I had some like robotics kits that I played with a lot. Uh, At one point I built a trebuchet in my backyard and started tossing bricks into my neighbor's yard. (laughs) so you know from very early age i was always into just kind of generally making things i had a uh summer job like junior senior year of high school where i worked for a small sheet metal shop and that was really my first introduction to quote-unquote real manufacturing um and i Actually, I, I ended up hating that job because I literally just spent the whole day um, drilling holes on a drill press or tapping holes with a tapping head on that same drill press. But it, it kind of got me introduced to to how things work, what it's like being on a uh, um, a shop floor, you know, how to uh, stay safe and, you know, what's the difference between a quarter 20 screw and a 80. Yeah, there you go. Not putting an end mill in a drill chuck, those kind of yeah. things. Uh, I, I'm sure I would have done that at that point still. <laughs> but after that, I uh, finished high school and actually joined the National Guard. And they paid for a large portion of my schooling at Purdue, where I got a degree in mechanical engineering technology. And that's you know where I really learned the engineering stuff. So mechanical engineering is kind of like, or excuse me, mechanical engineering technology, which is what my degree actually was, is a little bit more hands-on focused version of mechanical engineering. So 
while in school there, I've, you know, got a press cycle start on a, a Haas VMC for the first time. Uh, I had a little bit of a, a very short bit of training on like a manual lathe and manual mill. And I ended up working at the Purdue engineering department, like research machine shop, where I did not know what I was doing. I was not qualified for that job, uh, but I was the only one who would take it. So <laughs> it was, I was there learning how to machine while at the same time working with the other engineering students and faculty on their, their research projects. So you know, trying to keep the students who didn't know what they were doing safe and occasionally make a, a simple part or two for the the research guys. And then so how did you guys or I guess how did you meet your business partner and how did uh, DTE come to life? Yeah, so I met my buddy Scott at Purdue. Um, we lived together for like a couple years before I got married. And one day, I don't remember how it came up. I'm sure Scott was just kind of looking around Kickstarter and he showed me a Kickstarter for a pen. I mean, I believe it was the tactical turn or excuse me, tactile turn um, glider and slider Kickstarter. And this Kickstarter made like $200,000 or $300,000 for a pen. And we went, well, we can do that. And that's kind of how design the everything started is we wanted to, to make a machined pen. Oh, wow. Okay. So we, you know, at this point I was, I don't know, like a freshman in college. So I thought I could figure out anything. And I, I hand drew up some drawings and I tried to find a machine shop to make this, uh, this pen for us. And rightfully they all turned us down. Uh, I don't think we got a one quote out of like the five shops we, we contacted. And so we decided to 3d print it. And that was the, our first product, uh, which was a Kickstarter, the Spire pen is a, a metal 3d printed pen oh wow so how did you go about sourcing three because i mean how many years ago was this i mean metal 3d printing has been fairly expensive for quite some time uh let's see by the time we actually got around to the actual kickstarter i think i would have been like a junior or senior in college oh no actually i had just graduated college um so three years ago, you could go look at the, we could go look at the Kickstarter. Um, but I just did it through Shapeways. Oh, okay. Um, it, I mean, that was the easiest part was getting it printed. <laughs> okay, good. Very cool. Yeah, I'm looking at the Kickstarter right now. That's a neat pen. Yeah, and it, I mean, technically it succeeded as a Kickstarter. In the end, I think we made a grand total of like a hundred bucks off it. Um <laughs> And that is really the project that taught me about tolerances and fits and allowances. Um, Cause naturally when we got the parts back, the prototype that we had ordered was, was perfect and everything just kind of fit right together. But because there was a tolerance on that process, when we ordered the production run and that metal 3d printing stuff is pretty expensive. Um, none of the parts fit. So I had to, that's when I, um, Ended up buying my first lathe, which I got off the Facebook marketplace for like 300 bucks, a manual, like old Atlas lathe. And I, you know, started machining all of those out. Oh, geez. That's that's rough. Yeah, it was a good learning experience, though. And, you know, if it hadn't been for that failure, then we I, I don't know if we would have gone down this road as much as we did, because after doing that, that's when I found my first um, CNC lathe, 
which again, I got for like a thousand bucks off the Facebook marketplace. And that's really kind of what started the company. We didn't make any money off of that first Kickstarter, but on that CNC lathe, we started making a product that we called the Pillar, which you can probably find if you go way back through our Instagram, which is was a like a metal sleeve that would fit on a Sharpie marker. Oh, I think I remember seeing that. So that was the first big, really CNC'd product that we did and kind of ran into a lot of limitations on the machine. Um, the lathe only had like four inches of uh, Z travel. And when you're trying to drill like a three and a half inch deep hole on a three and a half inch or a four inch long part, uh, we just kind of ran into a lot of travel issues. And um, But it paid for the, the machine, paid for the lathe. It gave us a good start where we got... We were able to buy a, uh, a Sherline mill um, and just kind of keep bootstrapping our way forwards. Okay. And then you've had a few other products. Uh, I'm not sure if they've all been Kickstartered, but um, you had some tops and I think another pen. Yeah. Let's see. What was after the pillar? Uh, I believe the, the next project after our pillar was our first um, failed Kickstarter. Well, so far, technically our only failed Kickstarter, uh, which was the Buttress Wallet. Uh, we did that as a collaboration with a uh, a leather worker that I got to know through Instagram. Yeah, um, Spaceman Leather, right? Yeah, Spaceman Leather. Um, he does the all the leather work for uh, Yates Precision, their razors. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember if I saw him on your Instagram or Jake's first, but um, yeah, it's been cool. I followed him after either one of you guys, and it's been cool watching him kind of get more and more machinery and, and then get, you know, mm-hmm. up, up to speed too. So. And he's a machinist by trade too. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Very cool. But we just didn't really have all of our ducks in a row with the buttress wallet. Um, I, I think we made a great wallet, but there was nothing on it that was exciting or that stood out. Um, I still, I still carry mine. It's still my favorite wallet that I've ever had, but I think kind of getting back into the the purple cow stuff that we're going to talk about later. Um, there was nothing in there to grab people's attention. And so we just didn't get the um, initial uh, momentum that we needed on that Kickstarter to, for it to really take off. Gotcha. Yeah. You have a great YouTube video on why you thought it failed and all of that. Um, I, I know I've wanted to even just make a small product just to kind of go through the motions of, of having a Kickstarter and mm-hmm. your video is really helpful in, in seeing potential pitfalls going down that route. Yeah. I, I try to share uh, as many of our failures as I can. So I hope those videos are, are helpful. Yeah, definitely. So what kind of, what, what's the machinery lineup currently for design the everything? So we have the pocket NC, which is the desktop five axis mill. Uh, and that is definitely our, our main machine that runs well, that's really our only machine making a product right now. Um, I have a small CO2 laser that I very rarely use um, because the I don't have a good way of getting the fumes outside. And so it just kind of smokes up the room. Um, I have a Sherline lathe, a nicer one than our older one, a bigger one that uses ball screws instead of lead screws. Um that really right now is kind of my my hobby project that's not running yet. I'm, I'm working on putting a, a new controller on it. And then I have a um, 4x4 CNC router. It's the mostly printed, mostly 3D printed CNC. Um, 
And that is that's just good for little shop projects. I would never make a product on that. Okay, cool. Is do you have a V two ten or a V two fifty pocket NC? I, yeah, I have the pocket NC V two ten. The ten being the ten um, k RPM spindle. Right, and that's the one you're making the branding irons on now. Yep. So, how did you get onto branding irons? I mean, you know, you were doing pens and wallets. Uh, what made you, I guess, want to do a branding iron? So there was a couple things that went into the branding irons. Um, the first thing is I wanted a better mill than we had. At the time, I had the old Sherline mill, which I, I sold off when I bought the Pocket NC. But I wanted a way to fund a better mill. And a friend of mine, um, Tony Renoulet, uh, I believe his last name is, with Hillview Wood and Metal, um, used to make branding irons and then stopped. And he was kind of like the branding iron guy in the community of like woodworkers that I was in. And so like I saw that vacuum there. I was it seemed like an easy way to to fund the mill. And it worked out pretty well because I was able to get a lot of um, business like directly from him that he's passed off to me. And just by, you know, now I'm the the branding iron guy. Very cool. So I guess um, what lessons have you learned kind of going through the process of picking up a product that somebody else was doing, um, especially on a pocket NC, like what have you learned to make your workflow better lessons learned, I guess, as far as just selling something like a branding iron. Um, what can you tell us about that? So I've spent a lot of time working on my, my workflow, um, all the way from like actually selling the iron and talking to the customer up through how I deliver it. These branding irons could be very uh, time intensive if you let them be, especially with the the cam and the sale to the actual customer. So I've been just focusing a lot on on streamlining both of those processes. Streamlining the cam stuff is easy. You know, that's something that we all talk about, you know, in this community like, um, oh, Dr. Phil's, you know, how to do the uh, cam templates and, you know, NYC CNC has videos on that, but nobody talks about building a sales process. And that's really what I've been focusing on lately. Okay. So like what specifically have you been focusing on to make that easier for yourself? All of our branding iron sales right now start with a direct, with us getting a direct message from the customer. Uh, They'll either have been referred to us by a friend, seen our posts on Instagram, or seen one of our ads in the Facebook marketplace. They'll send me a message. And then from there, you know, I need to get all the information about, you know, what size of branding iron you want, what does your logo look like, um, you know, just figuring out costs, all that kinds of stuff. And like those conversations just take time, especially from the Facebook marketplace. There is a lot of... um, uh, turnover. Like we, we lose a lot of customers, especially when I tell them the price for the first time. And so handling those conversations so that they are both nice to the customer, you know, they're, they're personalized to the customer. I don't want an autoresponder robot, but also I don't have time to answer the same question over and over and over again. Um, figuring out that process has been a lot of, uh, where I've put my time and effort and the, the key to that. So for anyone here who does sales where you need to go through like the Facebook marketplace, the key is to have a script. So I I put together a Google document that has all of the common questions that I get asked with um, 
with pre-scripted responses to them where I can just go in and change a couple words if I need to. And that has been a lifesaver when you're you know, trying to make a branding iron while messaging three or four people at the same time. Oh, yeah, totally. So what's the decision behind not putting the price in the Facebook ad? Uh, it's there. Oh, okay. uh, people don't people don't read Facebook ads. That's fair. I mean, same with Craigslist and all that. So I, I totally understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, I have flat rate pricing. I have three different sized branding irons. Each of those is the same or each of those is their own price between 100 and 160, depending on the size. But people just need a little bit more. People just need a little bit more handholding when you're when they're ordering a custom product. It's not like going to Amazon where you can just hit buy. Everyone has different artwork and uh, different concerns. Yeah, that makes sense. So what about your your workflow on the mill besides the cam? Have you created any custom fixturing or anything like that to make it easier on you? Yeah, so I have, well, I have two different types of branding irons, three different sizes. I have a branding iron right now that I make out of one inch round stock. And I use uh, some work holding that Pocket NC has where they have a ER40 call it fixture that's built right into their uh, table. Um, and that's just a, the easiest way to hold anything on the Pocket NC. And then I have a just custom fixture I've made that holds um, the stock for my other irons, which are all two inches wide by some length, two or three inches long. Um, and that's just a, like a mighty... Or, no, it's not a muddy bite. Those that is just a. It's almost like a vice, where there's a small like a screw that I tighten down and it holds the material in place. And then it's got a 3D printed end stop. Just go look at my Instagram. This doesn't make very good a uh, podcast. <laughs> well, yeah. If if anybody doesn't follow you, um, where can they find you on Instagram so they can follow along? Yeah, I am at Design the Everything on Instagram. Awesome. Well, yeah, got everybody listening, go check out the the branding iron. Um, I think you even made a post of mine being tested. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely going to make a few videos whenever I can find something to burn. Um, probably at the shop. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, so your iron was the your iron was the first what I'm calling a, a revision B iron. My first irons looked basically exactly like all of the. Uh, the more mass produced irons from the bigger companies, you know, they had basically just, there were a wooden, wooden handle on a, with a metal stick that holds a brass branding iron with the machined face. But I wanted to do a new revision that stood out a little bit from those. And that was the point of the Rev B irons is that I, I wanted these branding irons to look really good on, on Instagram. And so my revision B irons have a, a pattern on the back of them. Um, inspired very much by what the knife makers are doing with their with their knife scales. So the first one I did was like a Grimsmo style honeycomb. I'm machining one right now as we speak that has a like a sunburst pattern. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. Yeah, because whenever someone, you know, gets their new branded iron, they're going to want to take a video of it. I take videos of testing all of my irons. And so now whenever you see someone using my iron, it'll it'll stand out as a design the everything branding iron. And hopefully catch a little bit more attention. I don't want to look like a, a Rockler iron or a, one of the Chinese import ones. Totally. Yeah. So you had mentioned that you are on woodworker forums and things like that. Are, are you a woodworker on the side? Like, have you done woodworking projects that led you to these communities? Or did you join them because you were doing branding irons? 
Um, yeah, once upon a time, woodworking tools were really all I had access to. And so, you know, it was the form of, you know, making things that was right there and easily available. Uh, I've, I've never been good at it. I've never really made anything that was that impressive. Um, but it, but it was fun. And I got in some of the Facebook groups. There's a really good Facebook, um, group that's called, we like to make stuff that has a lot of just very talented makers. And they are the ones that really got me interested in starting a business in the first place. Um, and you know, there's both machinists and woodworkers in there and they, they got me started. Very cool. Well, we can jump into questions. I posted kind of late because I figured we, we'd want more time to talk about the Purple Cow. But Built by Hutch, Rob, asked a few questions of you. Um, number one was, is a small hobby CNC enough to start a small business? Has the pocket NC paid for itself? So I'm going to say maybe depending on your definition of small business. Um, yes, the pocket NC has paid for itself several times o- over, but... I I ran the numbers the other day and figured out that like with just the pocket NC, I will never be able to go uh, full time. Even it, even if I had the pocket NC running eight hours a day, you know, five or six days a week, it just couldn't. It doesn't remove material fast enough to support me on branding irons. Okay, that makes sense. But I mean, do I have a business now? Yes. Am I doing it full time? No. So. Is it enough to start a business? Sure. Is it enough to sustain a uh, sustain you as a full time uh, business owner? Probably not. Yeah, I think that's a fair answer. So he had also asked, "Do you think that you will continue to make your parts solely with a pocket NC, or have you thought about outsourcing production and using the NC for prototyping?" Outsourcing production for what we do is a little bit difficult. Specifically, thinking about the branding irons, the you know. I, all of my products are are one-offs right now. So design one, make one. And granted, I might be able to give somebody else my my CAM templates, but that's it, it would just not really be worth it. I do I am working with a couple other people right now. Um, I have I just talked to a guy earlier today about making some uh, tombstone blanks for the pocket NC which I use to to make all of my fixtures, but I'll, I'll sell those to other guys that have a pocket NC. Not really as a main product. I'm not going to make a lot of money on them, but like I'm outsourcing those just because it's the kind of work it's not super fun to do on a, a small machine. The point of the buttress wallet was actually that we could sell a product that we didn't make ourselves. So it is something that I would consider doing. It just doesn't work for branding irons. That makes sense. So is the buttress something you think you'll bring back at some point? Maybe. We actually did a second revision of the buttress that we are going to release as a Kickstarter. We added, it's basically the same design, but we added some extra colors that, that really stand out a bit more. And we were pretty much ready to launch that Kickstarter. The campaign was written and everything, but, but Brandon Irons just took off for us and we couldn't justify splitting our attention. I would much rather focus on our one product that is doing really well instead of trying to go back and revise a previously failed product. That's fair. Yeah, especially if you're being so successful with the branding irons. Um, So the last question Rob had was any tips or tricks for milling brass, any warping problems? Um, I found that brass has been pretty easy for us to machine. Um, I use basically the same tools that I would use for aluminum, two and three flute. Uh, carbide end mills. 
there's um, a really great one that I like from Lakeshore Carbide. It's a like three flute stub that's got the uh, polished flutes. Um, and that just, you know, goes as fast as my machine will. In terms of warping, actually, yes, that is a problem we face. Not from the machining itself, but the first time you heat a branding iron, you relieve the stresses in it. And so when, whenever I make a branding iron, one of the reasons why I test every single branding iron in my, my shop is because when you, that first heat relieves the stresses and then I re-flatten the face of the branding iron on a uh, surface plate with some uh, silicon carbide sandpaper. Oh, that's smart. Okay. Yeah, I've definitely machined uh, brass pieces before and had to anneal them after the roughing uh, for similar reasons. Like they, they needed a, I'm trying to remember what the print call out was, but I want to say it was like a three or four thou flatness. And after the first op, they potato chips pretty bad. But after annealing, they came right back to flat. Yeah, our branding irons are a half inch thick. And let's see, the the deepest engraving we would do, which would be for a leather worker, would be an eighth of an inch. And most of the engravings are only 50 thou deep. Um, and I think it's just enough meat there. They don't really bend that much. But you can definitely notice they do they do warp by a few thou after you heat them the first time. Hmm. That's pretty cool, though. That's a, a nice inherent way for you to both test and relieve the stress. Uh, it also polishes the the design on the iron when you send it to your customer for the first time. And when you heat it, the brass changes color. So the um, background kind of turns a nice, deep golden yellow. And then you polish the face off. And that's, a you know, the nice, bright brass color, which just gives a better uh, first experience when the customer opens the, the package. Yeah, totally. I, I was going to ask you how I, I, I didn't think about the heat, but I was the deep gold color that you get after the heat is uh, pretty amazing. Like I know when I saw it on your Instagram, I thought it was, you know, some kind of coating or, or like it, it looks so unlike brass after the heat. Yeah. The really unfortunate thing about the branding irons is as soon as you use them for the first time or after a couple times, the, the face turns black instead of that nice, bright polish. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Just from the things you're burning. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, as long as it still works, that's what matters. Yep. Doesn't affect the, the function at all. Well, cool. Um, we can jump right into the book club. At this point, uh, you when I reached out to you to come on the podcast and I think a while back when, when I was asking for book club recommendations, you had really wanted to talk about the Purple Cow. Um, so I'll yeah. let you kind of introduce the book and, and why you think it's so important to the community. So Purple Cow, it's a fairly short book by a guy named Seth Godin, who is really one of the um, pioneers of modern advertising or modern marketing. Um, he's got a whole bunch of books that are are definitely worth reading. And this book specifically and a bunch of his other books have been uh, very influential to design the everything. So, for example, example earlier, I mentioned changing the design of our branding iron so they would stand out more, particularly on Instagram. That's because I reread this book and I went, oh, no, my branding irons look exactly like all of the uh, mass produced ones. Um I need something that makes mine interesting. And that was because I reread Purple Cow. Yeah, and you've even got a kind of a reference to it on your homepage on your website, you know, make your mark and you talk about the the reasons that people would want to make their mark, which kind of ties into the book. Yeah, exactly. And so, all right, going into Purple Cow a little bit. It's a little bit of an older book, 
Um, I think it was published in like 2003 or something. Um, Seth Godin um, worked for Yahoo. He was like their lead of marketing or something. So uh, that was back when he wrote this back when Yahoo was uh, a little bit more important than it is now. I was wondering about all those Yahoo references because he kept referencing Yahoo over and over and then like briefly mentioned Google. Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting choice, but now that makes much more sense. Yeah. Um, so it, sometimes when you're reading the book, there's some references that are, they're a little bit dated. Um, but my theory on this stuff is like the tools and our current situation um, does change, but really people are the same. So a lot of these marketing books um, hold true over time pretty well. Yeah, definitely. So we can uh, go through the book and talk about kind of anything that stood out to you and and anything that you think is worth uh, talking about. I mean, I guess we can, first of all, the reason the book is called The Purple Cow (laughs) is he describes the situation of driving down the highway or a road trip and that it's fun to watch cows, you know, for the first 20, 30 minutes or whatever. And then after that, the cows get boring. But if you saw something like a purple cow on the side of the road, you'd all of a sudden be interested again. Um, and so that's where the, the purple cow title comes from. And the book is about, you know, finding your purple cow in your business. Yeah. Um, and do you want to know a fun fact? Sure. So I used to work at Chick-fil-A. Um, I worked at Chick-fil-A all the way through college, which, by the way, was the best lesson I ever had in lean uh, processes because Chick-fil-A is um, very much into lean. But they're also into Seth Godin. And if you look at their marketing, it is all cows. And that has actually came from this book. Really? Yes. The Chick-fil-A cows. Okay. Um, and in all of their training materials, they, you know, um, they talk about being remarkable. And that is where that drives a lot of Chick-fil-A's um, branding is they they want to be remarkable. They want they want. Uh, customers to tell other people about Chick-fil-A, which they do a very good job of. Yeah, I can totally see that. There's there's many little idiosyncrasies that Chick-fil-A does that you don't find out elsewhere. You know, saying my pleasure when people say thank you and, uh, you know, the more personal touch that they uh, give. So I, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Um, and we should talk sometime about how Chick-fil-A runs its kitchen. Um, the, like, in terms of lean, I, I would put them up there with like Toyota, like they're good. Um, the store I was at, um, only had enough room to store about a day's inventory. So they cycled their, their whole inventory of, you know, everything just about every day. And so it was all, um, it was all combined out and rather impressive. Most of Chick-fil-A's business model in general is pretty, atypical and pretty cool like i know that they find their franchisees very differently yep. um and they require a, a much lower buy-in for their franchisees and, and things like that so you get people who actually care about the business that they're you know putting their life savings into and things like that mm-hmm. and uh yeah i totally agree about i mean i've never worked there but just looking in their kitchen even especially during covid like the quickness that they responded to what was going on and how it affected their business like they immediately change certain things on how how you order and how you pay and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, within a, a few days, 
or I mean, I don't go there every day, but like within a few weeks, at least it was completely changed and was the new norm. And there was like, you know, no misstep. It was, it was really cool to see. Yeah. Anyway, back to purple cows. Yeah. So really the, the point that Seth Godin is making in purple cow is that if you make something that people want to talk about, people will talk about it. And that word of mouth is far better advertising than uh, traditional mass media. Um, right. So he, yeah. he really a, a good portion of the um, beginning of the book is he's talking about how traditional advertising just doesn't work anymore. There's too much of it now. So everybody's just kind of phased out and doesn't, it doesn't pay attention to it. Which actually got me thinking, I, I kind of wonder if we're not approaching another step like that. Like, I feel like people are so phased out now by like sponsored influencers mm-hmm. and YouTube ads every 30 seconds. Um, like, I, I feel like we are approaching another cusp of change in marketing because it it's, I mean, at least for me and like the people I know, it doesn't work. Like we mute YouTube videos that are playing an ad or, you know, skip through sponsored segments or, or things like that. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it definitely got me thinking about how effective even current advertising is. Yep. Yeah. We, we just see more of it now. Um, YouTube's a great example, you know, before there was, you know, you'd get one ad before a YouTube video and now you get two before a video and then, you know, one every five minutes after that. It's, it's almost unbearable. Like if there weren't so many videos I want to watch, if there was another way besides paying YouTube an exorbitant amount of money, um, mm-hmm. I, I would change platforms for sure if I could. Yeah. Well, and so one of the other things he brought up is now there are just more products. Um, you know, anybody with the pocket and see in their, their garage can, can make a product. And so like one of the examples he gave was, was aspirin. And when aspirin was first invented, you know, aspirin, the, the painkiller, like that had to have been the easiest thing in the world to market ever because the, the value proposition was, you know, give us a little bit of money. We'll give you aspirin and, you know, then you won't be in pain anymore. And that, you know, that's there's nothing easier to sell than that. But now if you go into a drugstore and you go to the painkiller aisle, there's, you know, 45 different choices there. And how do you choose? You know, what what's going to make you grab the the weird one on the corner instead of the name brand aspirin or Tylenol. Right. Yeah. And and like one thing I don't think he touched on, but, or maybe he he kind of listed all these brands, but like some markets uh, spaces have gotten so saturated that they are cannibalizing their own sales. You know, like uh, Advil has like 80 million different types of Advil. And it's like, again, you know, how do I know which one to choose? It's got to have something for me to want to choose it over the others. Yeah. And, um, unless you are already the biggest player in that market, uh, like Tylenol, for example, great name recognition, like Tylenol is the the safe choice. So why, why would you buy anything else? What would make you want to risk changing? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a really good point of his, um, is that there are just more products than ever. And, and like breaking into a super saturated market is near about impossible. Yeah. Or another good example of this would be like the knife world. There are 
a lot of good knife makers right now, a lot of fantastic ones. So, so how do you stand out in the, the knife maker market? Well, you, you know, you can start a YouTube channel and document your process all the way from the beginning. That is a purple cow, not, not as part of the product itself, but as part of your, your brand. Um, right. You can buy or, a current. Yeah. Or you can buy a current. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually was thinking about that when I was reading that. I was like, that is a purple cow. Like nobody else can say, I, I, you know, I make knives on a, a Kern. Yeah. And he's, you know, other than that, like his knives are, you know, super high quality, but right. you know, everybody is. He goes into later in the book. Like you, you can't just stand out. You have to stand out and then be able to back up that um, yeah. initial knee jerk reaction to look at your product. Yeah. You can't just be interesting. You also have to be good. Exactly. But yeah, that's a, a great example. Um, I, I feel like that is a, a pretty saturated market, but it, it does seem like many of the knife makers find really good ways to be remarkable, um, whether mm-hmm. it's design or manufacture or, you know, things like that. Like the, it, they, they do a good job of that, I think. And one of the things that knife makers are good at is something that the Seth Godin says here is you don't need to sell to everybody. You just need to sell to the people who are trying, who are interested in trying new things and the people who want to tell other people about their new thing. Um, right. Yeah. He calls them the, the sneezers, right? Yes. Which comes <laughs> from another one of his books. Uh, it's called like the idea virus or something like that. Um, yeah. So like the 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 great thing about the the knife maker community is they're all on Instagram. Um, you know, they love sharing their their EDC pictures where they you know take a picture of their uh, Grimsmo Norseman next to their Grimsmo Rask with their matching Grimsmo um, pen, the the saga, and you know other people see it. So, I you know. If you weren't somebody already engaged in that community, like, like, let's take John Grimsmo for an example. John Grimsmo got in on social media, you know, pretty early, and um, found friends there and found a an audience that was into social media. So that when he started getting his products out in more more bulk, they were popular on social media, and you know, one person showed another person, showed another people, and. Um, I think really made him what he is today. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that Instagram has that sneezer mentality in general. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's already a very show off app for a lot of people. And so it makes it very easy. Like all you have to do is capture a few influencers or whatever you want to call them um, and have them show off a product. And, and, And it could be totally natural too. It doesn't need to be a paid promotion, but you just need to capture enough people who have influence and, and have them post about it. And that's, that is the sneeze that can really skyrocket your business. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why my branding irons have been um, more successful than anything else I've done. Nobody shows off their wallet. Um, I guess people might show off a fancy pen. Uh, but when you have a, a branding iron, it is Something making a, a branding or making a mark with your branding iron is very photogenic for Instagram and people always record it. 
So they record, you know, I'm finishing my project. I'm putting my stamp of approval on it. Um, and they're doing that with my branding irons. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't really get more, I don't want to say photogenic, but like videogenic than like burning yeah. something, like burning your, your uh, brand into something like that is, it's all the pomp and circumstance that you could possibly want in a, uh, a story or a, you know, Instagram post. Yeah. So have you found that a lot more of your sales are coming from Instagram rather than Facebook marketplace? It, it kind of goes back and forth. Facebook marketplace is kind of a steady, slow flow where I'll get, you know, like maybe three, four inquiries a week and that'll turn into one or two branding irons. I do. I pay a dollar a day for advertising in the Facebook marketplace. Uh, it costs me about five dollars to get a sale there. Um, on Instagram, I get a, I get a lot more interest when I'm actually showing myself making the brand irons. And if I get distracted on another project, those sales kind of slow down for a little bit, but then they'll, you know, I'll, I'll show another cool brand iron and they'll pick up all of a sudden again. Okay. So going back to your, uh, to the, the book, one thing that I, I did really appreciate about his approach to this um, was he was talking about how super successful companies and and companies that grow really fast don't have a ton in common. Like they don't need to be of the (laughs) same type or anything like that. And that it's, it's much safer actually to be risky and to, to try to find this remarkable idea rather than playing it safe. Like a lot of big companies do. Um, I I thought that was a, a point worth sharing because I think that a lot of us fall into that, safety mentality so often mm-hmm. um and, and i've heard that from you know uh, public speakers and things like that that you know very successful people even that they talk to are willing to to leap before they have all of the information and, and kind of build their parachute on the way down and that kind of thing and it, it's much better and you will be more successful if you kind of take that leap yeah Let's see, this may be coming more from some of his other books than Purple Cow. But one of the things that Seth Godin likes to emphasize is there is enough people in the world that you can choose a little tiny niche and have the perfect product for your for those people in your niche. And you don't need to please the whole world. If you try to please the whole world, you generally make a product that nobody cares about. It's boring to everybody, equally boring to everybody. But it's far better to have a product that is perfect for a small group of people that want to tell everybody else about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and that gets into that otaku idea that he brings up later, which is Japanese, I think, right? For Yes. Um, for- I believe he defined it as a, it was like an obsession that's more than a hobby, but less than a job or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of people that are going to spread your ideas and spread your product because they, they want to tell everybody they're so excited about it. And I, I mean, I think that the EDC community is a, a great example of that as well. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I tell people outside of the sphere of influence of Instagram about like, you know, a thousand dollar knife or a $200 pen. And mm-hmm. they look at me like I'm absolutely insane. Uh, but you find some people that you tell that to and they're like, Oh yeah, I would buy that. That looks great. Like yeah. that's a, a really cool product. Yeah. And you see a lot of that in the the machining community. I think, you know, a lot, most of us in this, you know, quote unquote, instant machinist community have that for machining. You know, we can go onto the, um, 
the instant machinist discord and talk about, you know, which is the exact perfect end mill or the benefits of the fifth axis rock lock system versus the Pearson pallet system. And, you know, that that's what otaku is. Yeah, totally. And I think those are good examples of what you just said of companies that kind of get this whole thing. Um, you know, helical is another one, helical Harvey, all that, like they know that they should be a present, a presence on Instagram and, you know, repost videos that people take of their stuff and do contests and, and become part of that sphere of influence. And, uh, it it shows, I mean, that's why they Mm -hmm. become, I mean, not really household names, but household names in machinist communities. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what's your thoughts on advertising and and how he talks about advertising? Like what, what do you think makes a good ad campaign then if we're trying all trying to be unique and remarkable? So I believe the Seth Godin uh, answer to that is don't spend money on ads, spend money developing your product. The kind of traditional marketing scheme is you come up with a product and then you spend a whole lot of money trying to figure out how to sell it. But what if you took all of that money from the marketing budget and put it into making your product uh, remarkable, something that people want to talk about? So I think Seth Godin would say no ads. I'll say that, you know, I have been been playing with ads. I've gotten very good results from the Facebook marketplace ads. And I have spent like a couple hundred bucks on Instagram and Facebook ads and just barely broken even or lost money on those. So I guess I'm kind of mixed on ads. I'm sure there's a way to do it well. Um, I'm not there yet. But I think there's a reason why the Facebook marketplace ads work so well. One, Facebook marketplace ads are are dirt cheap for some reason. Um, when we were running Instagram ads, we were getting... Um, CPM, that's cost per mil or the cost to show a thousand people your ad. So $10, you get a thousand people who see your ad. In the Facebook marketplace, it's like 25 cents in a thousand people who see our ad. Jeez. Uh, So that's one of the reasons why it's more successful. It's super cheap. Um, But also people go to the Facebook marketplace to buy stuff. They don't go to you know, scroll their Instagram feed expecting to buy a branding iron. Right. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. They're already in the mindset to spend money. So when they see something they like, it's a much easier conversion. And they may be looking for a branding iron. Um, I would say at least half the people that come from the, the Facebook marketplace uh, were looking for a branding iron when they found me. Really? Yeah. That's super interesting. Because I'm, I'm just trying to think like if I was trying to look for something like a branding iron, I never would have thought to go to Facebook Marketplace. Like that would be probably one of the last places I went to look. Well, would you but, scroll your Instagram feed? No, no, I, I go to Google. Yeah. Google. Like, yeah, that, that would be the first thing because I'd be like, oh, this is a pretty niche thing. I should probably just look it up on Google and, and I'll get results. But um, that's really interesting. Yeah, because like for me, Facebook Marketplace is like, oh, use car parts and maybe mm-hmm. some machining stuff like that's that, that's what I use it for is like, oh, maybe I can get a deal on a surface plate or something like that. I think woodworkers like there's woodworking tools are much more plentiful and easy to find than machining tools. I definitely envy the you know, the woodworkers can go get a top of the line table saw. That's, you know, the absolute best one. And it's maybe four thousand dollars, whereas, you know, four thousand dollars isn't even a desktop machine 
in in our world. So a lot of them, I think, kind of browse the Facebook marketplace for those tools that are everywhere and are more likely to see the the branding iron ad. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. I mean, 4,000 bucks is like, oh, you bought some tooling for your machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I wish I had uh, statistics on there on this. I I don't have it in my analytics, but I would be willing to bet that the people who do buy from me on the Facebook marketplace have seen my ad at least two or three times. So they kind of know where to find me. Okay. How much, uh, like what kind of metrics does Facebook marketplace give you when you're selling on there for buying ads on there? If you create your ad through the Facebook ads manager, you get more than you can use. There is, you know, every statistic you could ever want on the Facebook ads manager. But if you go to the Facebook marketplace and just hit promote, which is how I get the super cheap CPM, like the, the 25 cent CPM, um, there you do not get very much in the way of analytics. Okay. So that's more like just creating a, a local post or something and then just promoting it. That's exactly what it is. Okay. And I think that's why it's so cheap is it's only reaching people in um, my area, in my city. And so there's just not a lot of um, competition for this specific market. Yeah, that makes sense. So then are most of your sales through Facebook Marketplace local to you within your state, I guess? Yeah, I would say 90% of the ones from the Facebook Marketplace are in Indianapolis. And the other 10% may be other places in Indiana or like... Ohio or Illinois, you know, just across the border. Oh, wow. Okay. That's really interesting. So clearly there is a market for it then even outside of your state. Like if it's that prominent right there, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's great. That's why we tried to run uh, traditional Facebook and Instagram ads is we wanted to reach those people. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. I, I, I've only done one Instagram ad and it was more just to like play around with it and see what kind uh-huh. of metrics you got. And man, I found it very weird. Like it, it uh-huh. gave me the supposed amount of clicks that I was supposed to have, but like very little of it converted to like following me or anything like that. Like it, it seemed like unless you're going to spend big money with them, they make sure that your experience is not super successful. I think it's, I don't think it's them at all. I think they want to make it as successful as they can. I think it's the problem with advertising. We were just talking about this. Traditional yeah, ads don't work. Yeah. Yeah. You see the, the advertising little subtext under a post and you're like, okay, scroll past, keep going. Yep. That makes sense. And, yeah. and I don't know about you, but if I accidentally like an ad, I will go back and unlike it and then keep scrolling. Yeah. I've done um, that a few times. So that, that's totally fair. I, I didn't really think of it like that. So back to the book, actually, one thing. So a lot of the book does not directly apply to me um, because I don't have a product or anything like that. So it's not about making a specific product. But one thing that I've already started down the road of and working on and that this only reemphasized was because we're a job shop specializing in something. And so Mm -hmm. like we have like Brad and I have actually talked about it quite a few times over the last maybe three or four months of like the specific types of parts and accuracy and surface finish and all of that, like the, the things that we do extremely well, the types of materials that we do extremely well and taking on more jobs like that and turning down jobs that might not fit that envelope. Um, and it's, it's tough as a job shop, like saying no to work, mm-hmm. but the opportunity cost of like not excelling 
and being mediocre and not getting, you, you know, we, we do prototypes better than, you know, brackets for somebody locally. Yeah. Like that's, that's what we excel in is, is really high dollar prototypes and, and onesie twosie kind of stuff. And not like, you know, Joe down the street coming up and saying, Hey, can you cut me out 10 of these? Um, yeah. So it's that idea, I think is something very important for the, the instant machinist community. And like for the people who listen to the podcast is like, you might not have a product. And if you, you read this book and you thought, Oh, I don't have, you know, I, I don't make anything. Why should I care? But it's, it's about specializing your business too. And making like, that's why people come to us is because they know, like, if they bring me a complicated prototype that requires a bunch of setups and stuff, I'll execute and give them a, a gorgeous part in return. Mm-hmm. I would say this is just as applicable to a service style business. Um, we've done a bad job of talking about services because I make a product and you know, <laughs> I've been talking a lot. Um, but no, no, no. This is just as applicable to a job shop or to uh, you know, a design firm or whatever, like you said, you can like specializing, uh, and niching down with your service is important to that. But remember, it doesn't necessarily have to be your actual product itself or your actual service itself. Uh, okay. So here's a random thing that design the everything does. You may have noticed we're really into the color orange. Um, (laughs) I have noticed (laughs) it's, like the color orange is our branding. We are the orange people on our rule is that most of our Instagram posts have to have either our logo in them or the color orange. And if you scroll through my Instagram feed, you'll see we don't always live by that, but we're, we're generally pretty close to always having orange. And in our Instagram stories, I always scribble behind the text in orange. Like that is, I don't know, maybe not quite a purple cow like uh, Seth Godin would talk about, but something that makes you stand out. Uh, you could be the the machine shop that has the best packaging that your customer has ever seen. You might, um, you know, cut out Kaizam foam inserts for every single part and make them look perfect. Um, you might be the machine shop that delivers your product in a, I don't know, purple spotted box, a purple box with white spots. So it looks like a purple cow. Um, <laughs> like there, there's ways that you can, you can still stand out without changing your, your service. Or you can be the shop that, you know, you get a, you have a customer walk in the door with a drawing and you've already started machining that part before the customer walks out. Yeah. Well, actually, another example I thought of, um, if you've ever bought a 3D printer board from Big Tree Tech. I have not. So they make the SKR boards, which are becoming really popular, um, both for mm-hmm. ender replacements and ender run other boards. But they every single order from them comes with a tiny little squeaky yellow duck in the box. Yeah. Yeah. And see, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, and at every time, like even I opened it in front of my fiance a week or so ago when I replaced my Ender's board, and she was like, "Oh, I want that! Like that's so cool!" And I was like, "You know, yeah, I guess it is. You know, it. it I know it's from them at least." And um, the Prusa printers always ship with candy in them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They have what uh, Haribo gummy bears, right? Yeah. Or let's see. At work, we use Sticker Mule for some of our labels. And every time we spend, I think it's over a hundred dollars with Sticker Mule, they send us a thing of hot sauce. I've seen that. Yeah, that, that 
that's a, a pretty good one too. Um, and so now we have like six bottles of hot sauce in our uh, shop kitchen. And guess what? That, you know, nobody uses, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people do not use hot sauce all that quickly. So that stays around in your refrigerator forever. People seeing your name, your label, and, you know, looking at your purple cow every time they open the fridge. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think hot sauce was one of the examples Seth gives too, is like hot sauce does really well versus like mustard. You know, nobody's going out and like raving about a specific mustard brand, but like everybody or anybody who enjoys hot sauce has their hot sauce brand that they are like passionate about. It seems like. Yep. You know, coffee is the, the same way. Everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody. There are some people that are super into coffee, how they make it, you know, which, which kind of grind they use, which kind of grinder they use. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pour over all this stuff. Yeah. There, there are people who are very specific about it. Going back to the book here, uh, one of the other things that Seth Godin says, which I actually definitely missed the first time I read this book, is that this purple cow thing isn't a a one and done. You don't make your your one knife that's different and then, you know, keep making that forever and expect people to still stay interested in it. Um, but there is a, a cycle to it where you make your purple cow, you milk it for a little while, and then while you are milking your cow, you make another cow. And it may take you, you know, two or three or five or ten different attempts at a purple cow to get one that resonates, but you're still milking your first product while you're developing your second. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. You can't if you rest on your laurels, like you just become like every other safe company out there, you've, you've constantly be, have to be somewhat innovating to keep bringing people back. Yeah. And, and the other thing that um, I think applies to a lot of the services out there like me is, is that quality isn't a good enough selling point. You know, mm-hmm. everybody, at least, you know, most machine shops out there that are job shops all say that they have a high quality standard. Um, and that's, that's no longer a selling point. You know, everybody can claim, everybody can say that they're AS certified or whatever. Um, That's not the selling point. That is not a purple cow anymore. Mm -hmm. So having read this book now, how are you going to take this and apply it to your business? So I, I, like I said, I think I'm going to continue to enforce the narrowing of our off, not offerings, but um, like we, we know what companies we deal with. Well, we know, what we do well for them. And I think that that's going to steer kind of who we advertise to or who we try to get in contact with. Cause we don't really do any advertising, but I do, you know, I'll, I'll look up people on LinkedIn if I want to connect with them or something like that, or, or try to find the mail format for this company. You know, is it first name dot last name and then just figure out who I want to email kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that that really steers what kind of businesses we want to do or what kind of businesses we want to excel in. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a purple cow, but because we know these customers so well, we can kind of tailor our business to be that purple cow for them to be like, oh, well, of course we're going to send it to Proteum because they do this kind of work for us so quickly. And really I've known for a while now and it kind of sucks because it's super stressful, but like our purple cow is our quick turnaround. Like most shops we're competing against have double or triple the lead time that we do most of the time. Uh-huh. And so being able to deliver great parts quickly has really been become our purple cow um, kind of at the detriment to my sanity sometimes. But <laughs> um, besides that, yeah. like 
I, I know that that's what we do well. You know, we're, we're not, we're not a production shop. People don't come to us with a million parts to make, but if they have one really high uh, precision part that needs to be done tomorrow, we can usually knock it out of the ballpark. Yeah. So what about you? Besides your branding irons, were there any other things in your business that you wanted to change after reading it again? So yeah, we mentioned the branding irons. Uh, I should mention that the other thing we do that stands out is we, we do short lead times as well. Uh, the average lead time on a branding iron from our competitors is about three weeks, whereas I'm normally can get a, a branding iron in the mail in under 48 hours. Yeah, I was shocked at how quick mine shipped and mine was a, a beta too. Mm-hmm. And like I got the order confirmation or the, the shipping one, you know, a few days after we talked about it, I was pretty surprised. I thought yours was slow. That <laughs> took me a couple days to to get done. Yeah, normally I get them machined in about 24 hours and then shipped to the next the day after that. Pretty amazing. Um, and, and like even not being in the woodworker space and having to look at other lead times for these like three days or four days or whatever is, is pretty amazing period for any kind of custom uh, part. But okay, in terms of new things after rereading this, it made me think more about how how I'm going to move forwards with marketing. Uh, I really want to get out of of all advertising altogether, like traditional running ads in the Facebook marketplace or on Instagram, and move to a model that benefits both uh, me and uh, the person. That benefits both me and the customer, I guess, is the the better way to word it. So the thing I've been thinking about is, you know, by the definition of waste that we use in the machining community and the, the manufacturing world is anything that does not provide value to the customer is waste. When we run ads, let's say 10,000 people see those ads and 100 of them uh, are interested in the product, 10 of them actually buy the product. All of that time and money we spent advertising to all those people who didn't want the product is waste. And so why am I spending money on those people when I could be putting that money into methods of advertising that support the community and make a better product for the customer? So and that's why, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I I changed the design of the branding iron so that it stood out from the competition better. Uh, that was kind of the, the first step that, you know, it, it helps me with advertising. It it does add to my cycle time a little bit. It's about 10 minutes to do those patterns. But, you know, it's, that's that's advertising money. That's my advertising budget that I am dedicating to making a better product. But, you know, that only can go so far. So what's my next step? How do I reach even more people? Well, again, could pay for more ads, but I would rather serve the community in, you know, whatever way I can that that spreads my my product. So, you know, the the kind of popular way that's done right now is through influencers. And I would much rather, you know, give a cut of my profits to a friend of mine that's a woodworker that has a large social media following. You know, we'll send him a, a branding iron every month. We'll give him a coupon code where customer gets 10% off and then I um, kick 10% of the profits over to the woodworker. You know, that's helping... Uh, just another guy with a small business like me, while not, you know, just feeding the money to Facebook. I, I think that's uh, something I've been thinking about more. I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, having people evangelize your product is always 
at least nowadays, it seems like a much better use of uh, advertising dollars because then you have somebody who is you know fervently talking about it and enjoys it and 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 can also give you constructive feedback too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that I want to do is. I just want to make some branding irons for for fun designs that are interesting to me or ones that would do well on social media and then uh, give them away or do a um, like a charity auction for them, you know, just like with uh, this whole recent um, uh, game stock stop thing, stock thing. I could make a branding iron that's, you know, like GME, rocket chip, diamond, diamond, diamond. Um, <laughs> yeah, like uh, Jonathan at Split 141 did with his knives. Yeah, exactly. So. Like him. That's where I got the idea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like that would get attention. It would be interesting. It would be a fun branding iron to make. I can, you know, give it away. And it's, you know, pretty cheap advertising. It's just some time and a chunk of brass. But you know, that could really spread um, much farther than one of my ads could. And it would spread to people who would care. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great idea. And because you can turn them around so quick, you can react to current events mm-hmm. like that. You know, like if you did that three weeks from now, people would be like, oh, that's that's tired. But like, you know, doing it now, like or, or whatever the next big thing is doing it while it's happening. That's some great advertisement and community involvement and all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm working on a, another size of branding iron. I need to get my, I just finished my fixture. I need to get my templates in place um, for a very small branding iron that uses uh, one inch diameter brass, like my other branding irons, but it, it just needs like a, a half inch little coin of brass, one inch diameter, half inch thick, which I have as remnants from the other branding irons I've made and from um, the arch top, which we completely skipped over when we were talking about my products. But I have, you know, hundreds of these little brass cookies left over that I can turn into a very small branding iron and, you know, ship to a large number of people for very cheap. You know, I can sell them as a uh, what's called a lost leader for like five bucks with, you know, some cutesy little design on it or something that's attention grabbing, but would, you know, kind of get my name out there more. I don't know how much different a design would be, but you could even use them for like wax seals instead of branding irons. That that is actually um, part of the plan. Oh, there you go. That uh, that is actually the the primary purpose of the fixture. Oh, that's uh something I've wanted to make for a while. One of my best friends, his wife, has wanted one for a couple of years now, and that the time always passes me by too quickly mm-hmm. to remember to make one for her birthday or something, but. Uh, yeah, wax seals are super cool. Yep. Uh, my brother's getting married here in a couple of months, so that's going to making one for his wedding invitations is going to be the the first one I do. Oh, that'll be that'll be really cool. Speaking of outsourcing, going back to uh, built by Hutch's question. Yeah, so I outsource all of my handle production to a friend of mine that I met through that Facebook woodworking group named uh, Seth Williams, and he is at his Instagram is SC2H5 creations, but I've been working with him and another guy. And for these wax seals, we are going to do a, uh, a resin handle instead of the, the wood that we've been doing. That'd be really cool. I, I, I love the handle. Like it, it's, it's a nice classy touch to the whole package for sure. 
Yep, those are the most expensive part of the branding iron, but they're they're handmade, they're high quality. I'm I'm very happy with them. Yeah. Oh, speaking of the branding iron too, you didn't mention, but you had added the date now on the side of them too, which is another cow, I guess, for them. It's it's yeah. nice to see like when they were made. Yeah, the date and our logo are now on the side of them. And that is uh, going back to John Grimsmo. That is something that I learned directly from him is John Grimsmo uh, puts his, well, he puts all kinds of dates all over the, his Norsemen and and Rask knives. Um, And I thought it just kind of made it, uh, it made the branding irons a little bit less mass produced and a little bit more like a collector's item. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's much more. I mean, you already have your logo on it, but it feels much more personal. Like, okay, this is this one was made this date, and like you can look back on it, I can look back on it, and and know when that was produced, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So going back to the book, another point that I thought was very important in the book is like you you know might might start reading all of this about purple cows and think like, oh, what crazy thing can I do next to do this? And like he makes a very big point of like remarkable does not equal outrageous. Like you don't need to do stupid things or crazy things just to, to drum up buzz. Like those things never last. And it's about being remarkable, like sticking in someone's mind, not for a bad reason or not for a crazy reason. Yeah. Let's see. I'm trying to think of an example of a, of a company that focuses on the outrageous. I can't think of a national one. We've got a local, used car salesman or maybe just a car salesman. I've never been to his lot because all he does is scream at you from his, <laughs> his ads. And like, granted he sticks in my mind, but he also sticks in my mind as like, wow, that is the most annoying person I have ever heard. And I probably will never go buy a car from him because of it, but it is outrageous. Like he, you know, every single ad is about like how he's going to have a heart attack. If you don't come <laughs> down and buy his cars off his lot. Um, so that, that was the the first example. It's not very, uh, friendly to my audience. You know, I'll have to find a, a clip of it, play it on my Instagram or something. But, um, yeah, it, it was the first thing that came to mind for me. Well, and the fact that we can't think of any companies that are, that have been outrageous to be remarkable, um, proves that it doesn't work particularly well. Cause I know there's companies that try, uh, I definitely see ads where that's what they're aiming for, but I, I couldn't tell you what a single one of them is. Uh, which is a pretty good sign that your advertising isn't working. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you've you stood out briefly and then faded into obscurity. Another thing down that vein that he talks about is, or something that he tells you to be careful of is, uh, don't make cheap your purple cow. And if you go with cheap as your purple cow, it becomes a really slippery slope really fast. Yeah, I could see that. For sure. Uh, again, you know, I, I can't think of a, a, a good example of that. But like, you know, it's weird as there is they, that line like big tree tech, including their little duck in there is cheap. But at the same time, I, I don't know, it, it like it rides that line of like there's not too much cheapness in it. And so it 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 doesn't go all the way there. And they're not constantly trying to like throw new tiny little animals in there or something like that. So if but I, I can't think of like a, a good example of somebody who cheaps out and then it, you just kind of forget about it. Well, I think he's specifically talking here about lowering your prices as your way of, of standing out from your competition. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. So like you, 
you know, let's take like your let's take your business. Let's say another machine shop pops up and you know they start quoting everything lower than than you are. And then well, you start quoting lower, then they start quoting lower, and it's just kind of a, a, a race to the bottom. Um and in the end, nobody makes money and you have to reduce the quality of your of your product or your service. Um what would be much better is, you know, the other machine shop shows up and, you know, you keep your prices the same and you say, well, you know, I'll have this for you tomorrow. And the other, while the other machine shop says it'll be a week, it would be much better to compete on. It's much better to compete on things that aren't price. Unless you're unless you're Amazon or Walmart, they can do it. But but no one here is Amazon or Walmart. Right. Yeah. No, And I. I thankfully have not fallen into that trap. Like we've lost work to customers who have like even shown us other customers quote or other machine shops quotes in in like an effort to get us to lower our prices. And Mm -hmm. usually I'll just say, Oh, you know, good luck. I hope it all works out. Like, cause I, I know the level of quality and the level, like the, the quick turnaround that we do offer and like, yeah, they might promise a week faster than us and their lower price. But you know what? I, I can almost guarantee that, it's going to be late and it's not going to be good. Yeah. Um, or maybe it is a, just a better part for that shop. Maybe it's one that needs a, you know, a, uh, Y axis live tooled lathe and you just don't have it. And like, it's fine. You don't have to be able to win every job or please every customer. Um, cause if you do try to please every customer, then you're, then you fall victim to just being generic. You don't have that specialty in that that purple cow. Yeah, that's a, a really good point too. Yeah, not pleasing every customer and, and not taking it personally when you can't. That's uh, definitely a big thing in this game, I think. Yeah. And then uh, you had written up here too. I, I think that's a, a good other point too is that, you know, the purple cow is not about passion. Like you don't have to love mm-hmm. your purple cow. You don't have to love everything about it. You just need to see that it's like the best way to differentiate yourself and become remarkable. So like, let's say you want to start, I think what Seth Godin was saying here is let's say you want to start a, uh, a new business. You decide that you want to start a coffee shop. You don't have to be super into coffee to do that. You just need to be able to emphasize enough with your customer to know what they want. And then you need to, um, you need to test it. And that's, you know, one of the things he says here is it's not about intuition. You don't, build purple cows by sitting down and thinking about the best way of doing it and then getting it right the first time you may need to try five things uh you need to you need to test what you're doing you need to see if it's actually making a difference and if it actually resonates with your audience you don't have to have the otaku yourself you just need to reach people who do right yeah to use your example like you know let's say all of your customers love pour over pour over coffee and you can't stand it that it doesn't matter like that, that you found your purple cow, you found what you do well or what they love or something like that. Yeah. Having that, that otaku yourself is, is a crutch. Like it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good way of getting started. But if you are relying on your own, uh, your own interest and your own passion, you know, that may be good enough for your first product, but how many products can you really stay passionate about? Can you really sustain a business based on, the, the whims of the passion of the, the owner. No, you need to, you need to put a process in place. That's what the, um, some of the other books we've read have been about. Yeah. It really is about, yeah. Creating processes for sure. 
you read the Emith on here, right? Is a book club book. I think we read it just before we started the book club because, and that okay. that was the reason we started wanted to start the book club because there's you know a bunch of books that are worth talking about. But yeah, the Emith is, is a great one for that for sure. So, is there anything else that you find really salient about the book that you think is a uh, worth sharing? Well, he kind of has this summary here at the end that I think sums it up pretty well. His summary is. Don't be boring. Safe is risky. Design rules now. Very good is bad. I think that's really a good summary of the book. Um, I should say what he means by very good is bad is that like very good isn't isn't good enough every anymore. Everybody's very good, just like you're talking about with quality. Everybody is good quality. Everybody's uh, ISO nine thousand. Um, but you need to be the best. You need to be interesting. You can't just be very good. You need to be interesting. Right. I talk to a lot of engineers and, and like rarely outside of Proteum, like a rarely are, you know, if I'm just talking to an engineer at a drinks or lunch or something like that, rarely are they like, oh man, I went to this amazing machine shop. It's uh-huh. like, oh yeah, I get parts made, whatever, you know, let's talk about something else. Yeah. Well, cool. yeah, I, I think that those are probably the, the four biggest points and, and like it is a very quick read. So if you haven't read it by this point, it, it's worth picking up on audible or something like that and listening through, um, just to get you in that mindset of just figuring out what makes you different and what makes you worth buying over the other people. And I should say this book is a little bit older. Uh, Seth Godin has another book that kind of summarizes all of his other previous books called This Is Marketing. So if you want a deeper dive, This Is Marketing by Seth Godin. It's like a 12 hour audio book instead of this one, which is like four hours. Yeah, this one was super quick. I was able to re-listen to it again today and i was like oh yeah yeah, i forgot how short this thing was well very cool thank you again for coming on for the book club but let's jump into real quick before we wrap up what's new in dce new shop things um let's see what's been going on so the revision b branding irons have kind of been the biggest push i have been working with um these two kids at a company called servone solutions c-e-r-v V-E-N, Cerven Solutions, uh, Sean and James. I had them do a um, really quick design for me of a sheet metal part, really just to, to test them as a vendor more than anything. And they did fantastic at that. And so I threw them a job for uh, my tombstone templates that I, I'm going to uh, hopefully start selling here soon. And th- these are just like two kids with a, a Tormach and a... Um, you know, garage or basement. And I call them kids. I shouldn't call them kids because they're probably just like three years younger than I am, but um, <laughs> they're just getting started. I think they're at least one of them is a, uh, I believe a student, like an engineering student, and they're doing some pretty cool stuff with a Tormach in a garage. So they seemed like a good fit for my uh, pocket NC tombstones. Uh, let's see. I'm also working on, this is what they designed for me is what I'm calling a cooling station. For my branding iron, it's just a little formed piece of aluminum that um, keeps the branding iron up off the table so that when you're done marking your your piece, you can set your branding iron on the little cooling station and it doesn't burn your table or whatever else you happen to put it against. Oh, cool. That should be a great companion product. Yeah. And it'll ship flat um, just inside the same uh, envelope as the branding iron. It'll they'll be super cheap for me to make. So it won't even add to the the price of the, the whole package. Any, I work in a sheet metal shop as my day job. So sheet metal is cheap for me. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I always wrap up 
every episode by asking my guests, what did you research this week? And it doesn't have to be machining. It could be anything, but it's always cool to hear what other people in the community are uh, deep diving into. Uh, this week, I have very intentionally taken time off from reading and researching. Um, the past couple of weeks, I've been diving super hard into marketing, uh, trying to figure out the the best way forward for design the everything. How do we get to um, our sales goals? Uh, and I was burnt out. So this week, I took time off. I've just been reading fiction books and uh, hanging out with family. Awesome. That's not bad at all. What about you? So, I mean, obviously I did some research into the whole GME and AMC thing. (laughs) I had never really been into stocks or anything like that. And I didn't invest any in them, but, you know, kind of more understanding what a short is and what's going on uh, just because it was pretty interesting. And then I've been looking into carbon fiber impregnated, uh, not resins, uh, filaments for my printer and just kind of seeing what's possible out there. Um, I found some PETG that's carbon fiber impregnated today that mm-hmm. I might buy because I definitely know for a fact that my Ender will not print nylon carbon fiber very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can print PETG pretty well. And so if I can do that with some carbon fiber in it and get it even stronger, I, that would be really cool. Um, I, I've started printing a lot more in PETG just because, again, you know, I, I know without an enclosure, ABS is not going to print super well. Um, but pet G works pretty well, actually. So yeah, that's been my, my looking into, I ended up getting a filament dryer this week cause it mm-hmm. was on super sale pretty much on Amazon. Like I had a $50 gift card and they were on sale from 80 to 55, I think. So I spent five bucks on a filament dryer more or less. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that is actually something that I have been, I guess this, this is something I've been researching this week is how to print nylon. Um, because I want to get to the point where I can print that carbon fiber nylon stuff, but it's so expensive that I've been, uh, hesitant to just buy a, you know, hundred dollar roll of the carbon fiber stuff. So I've just been playing with vanilla nylon and trying to figure out how to print that on, on my printer. Yeah. I've been watching your experiments and it's, uh, encouraging. Like I know that, so I, I haven't mentioned it. You haven't listened to the episode yet because it's coming out in the next day or so. <laughs> Last week, I talked to Tom about um, I'm going to be building a Voron printer, which is, a, is an enclosed printer. And then so I'm thinking that plus the filament dryer should be able to let me print those nylons and things like that. Um, and I'll have a better hot end that I can get up to temperature and all that. So Sweet. Um, that's that's hopefully the plan is, is once I go to a, a better more well put together printer that I'll be able to print these. Ex- I could, I, I want to say exotic, but they're not, you know, it's not super exotic in the world of 3d printers, but for me compared to PLA, it, it is. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I've had, I've had fun playing with that. Um, kind of as a, is a hobby. Um, my, my family is super into battle bots, like the, the TV show. Mm-hmm. And I found out that there are like one pound and three pound uh, like battle bot competitions. And so I started building a uh, battle bot for that, for like a three pounder. And that's why I went down this whole rabbit hole of wanting to do the carbon fiber nylon stuff. Um, 
But then thanks to COVID, the only competition that's within like literally 400 miles of me was, is canceled like forever. Oh no. So I've been spending my lunch times designing or changing my battle bot design into just one that I can safely drive around the house and like let my kids drive. And yeah. <laughs> so speaking of battle bots and things like that, have you ever seen the Japanese uh, sumo bots that they yes. fight? That the is... ones that are like a thousand miles an hour in like three inch circle or three yeah. foot circle. Yeah the, yeah. the fight lasts like half a second and then one's out of the ring. Um, some of those compilations on YouTube are some of my favorite videos to watch. They are so insane. And some of them are really funny to watch too, because they just fail so spectacularly. Yeah. Those, those are incredible. Well, maybe you'll have to figure out one of those and, and rebuild and play yourself against your, your own sumo bots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned my family is super into battle bots. Our plan for this coming weekend is I have all of the, the electronic components from the, the one that I was going to build. So we're going to all meet up in my parents' house with cardboard and hot glue guns. And I already have the wheels and electronics and we are going to hot glue ourselves some uh, makeshift battle bots and fight them in my parents' living room. Oh, that's going to be so epic. Yeah, it would be great for like uh, I've got a, a four year old daughter who's kind of just getting to the point of being able to understand, you know, making stuff and how robots work. And so it'd be great for her and just a good family activity. Yeah, totally. I mean, and that's that's not a typical family activity. So I applaud <laughs> you for, for getting them that young into that kind of stuff. BattleBots was always like when I was a kid, I we watched it. I don't remember what channel it was on, but like every time it came on, we would watch it. So I definitely have fond memories of, you know, sitting down with my dad and watching BattleBots as a kid. Yeah, my my whole family, which most of us are here in Indianapolis, we all meet up every Sunday and and watch the most recent BattleBots episode. Well, hey, AJ, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and being my first new uh, book club guest after the new change. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to recommend a book and read it again. And uh, just thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my first time on a podcast. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Well, thanks everyone for listening and we will be back next week with another episode.